it's chapter 5 and then verse 13, and I'll read from there to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power, and is as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. As a pastor, I get a lot of questions, many of which I can't answer. People have questions that are beyond my pay grade, and I'm not able to answer them. But sometimes people ask me questions that are really quite easy to answer. One of the questions is, what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? And when people ask me that, that's an easy one, because I just tell them, well, read the Bible and do what's in it. There you have what God's will for your life is. There you have what He wants you to do. And oftentimes they're looking for something more specific. And to get more specifics, the letter of James is helpful. Because James doesn't beat around the bush. Those of you who have been here know that he goes right to the point and he tells us what not to do and what to do. And this last section is no, uh, no uh, variation from that pattern. In fact, he names four specific things, must, uh, rather four specific situations, and in those four specific situations, he tells us what to do. So this will be clear as James is always clear. This is what you're to do. And it gets even simpler because in the first three situations, the answer is exactly the same. The same thing to do in every situation. And that is to pray. To pray. So the first three situations, what are those? The first situation is in verse 13. He asks the question, Is anyone among you suffering? And we have seen through this letter that the readers of this letter, they were suffering. Uh, they were not the, the, the poorest people on the planet, but they certainly weren't wealthy, and they were being oppressed by the wealthy. So they were being persecuted and taken advantage of. They were suffering. And suffering, as you know, uh, if you've been on the planet for any length of time, is something that all of us experience. All Christians, all humans experience suffering. So this is a universal experience. So when he says, is any of you suffering? The answer to that is always going to be yes. Someone is always suffering. And his answer to suffering is to pray. To pray. Now, um, this doesn't exclude activity. It is not just pray and nothing else. Uh, There may be something that you need to do about the situation, but prayer always takes the situation and it puts it under God's control. It recognizes that whatever I do or don't do, 
that ultimately God is the one who is in control. Um, perhaps this is the situation in which we are most likely to pray, isn't it? When we're suffering, even, even sometimes atheists, um, uh, contrary to their, their, their best intentions, somehow, sometimes blurt out a prayer. Uh, so it's, it's something that humans often do when we're suffering. But at the same time, it's actually a, a sincere prayer in time of suffering is actually uh, not a mistake. It's actually a, an expression of faith. Because there's something else we could do in suffering. We could raise an angry fist. We could curse God if we think He exists and He's causing our suffering. That could be the response to suffering, and that is the response of some people. And so if we, under suffering, raise our voices not to complain, not to curse, but rather to ask God, we're expressing that we believe. Even if we don't understand, even if we we don't see the whole picture, we're expressing that, God, we have faith in You, we trust You, to be able to do what's best and to do what's best. Is anyone suffering among you? James says, let him, let her pray. That's the first thing. The second situation is the opposite, still in verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone cheerful? Now you recall, if you were here for chapter 4, that, that James told us to mourn and to weep. Uh, but he didn't consider that to be the only posture of the Christian. He didn't want us always to be sad. He told us to mourn and weep because of our sin, to move us toward coming back to God. But he also considered that cheerfulness would be a normal part of the Christian life, in addition to suffering. So he says, is any of you cheerful? And then his response to that, his instruction to that, is the same. Let him sing praise. Now, what is singing praise? Singing praise is another way of praying. It's not separate from praying. It's just a a, a more melodic way of praying. It's a more rhythmical way of praying. But it's still prayer. And the proper response to cheerfulness is to sing praise. Now, one thing that you may have noticed about Christians, and this is throughout all of our history, and it actually describes Jews as well in the Old Testament and, and to this day, uh, but if all around uh, the world and throughout our history, you will find that Christians are a singing people, a singing people. Wherever Christians are, they sing. Now, that's uncomfortable and awkward for some of us who don't sing well. And, 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 and when we're part of a group that is a singing group and we're not singers, it can be rather uncomfortable. But uh, and, and I share that un, uh, discomfort because I'm not particularly good at singing. And so I'm sympathetic uh, to those who aren't given towards singing. But uh, it, it, it doesn't say let him sing praise if he's good at singing or if she's good at singing. This is, this is the response of all Christians, those who sing well, and the rest of us also, uh, those who don't. Now, in singing together, why is it important that we sing together? Because when we sing together, not just in the shower, singing in the shower is one thing, and that's fine, but singing together is lifting our voices together in praise of God, but it also encourages each other. I don't know if you've had the experience of coming into a church service and being down, being burdened, being saddened, being grieving, 
And then maybe you're not able to sing yourself. You're not able to lift your voice in praise, but you hear your brothers and sisters around you lifting their voices in praise to God, and you begin to listen to the words. And those words not only bring glory to God, but they also encourage your heart. So that's why Christians come together and sing together. It's for God's glory, but it's also for the encouragement of the people of God. Now, our goal for public singing, it's interesting, as I've come back to the United States after being away for a long time, um, sometimes people ask me to declare where we stand on certain things. And they, they'll say, what kind of worship do you have? And uh, apparently, people fight over that, as amazing as that is, <laughs> fight over the style of worship. And, and what, I, what I want us to do here is this, and this is, what I, this is my answer, and I've said this to you before, and this is our goal, something I think all Christians can rally around so that it's not a point of contention, but something we can join in. Uh, and and, and it, it supersedes the question of style. Three aspects of, of worship, of singing together. The first is that it be biblical. That is that the content of our songs be in accordance with what the Bible says. Uh, the second is, and this is another way of saying the same thing as the first, but, but, uh, but a little different, and that is that it be God-centered. That it be focused away from us and that it be focused on God and His glory. And the third is that it be congregational. And that means two things. That the main instrument of our, of our worship together are the voices of God's people. That's one of the reasons we have, we have a few instruments, but we also have them in the back so that they can join in with us. They're not performing in front of us, but they are joining in with us and helping lead us in worship. Uh, and so uh, the main voice, uh, the main instruments are the voices. And here's the other thing, and this is where I come in, not being able to sing very well. They need to be songs that normal people can sing. That's what congregational means. And, and I'm trying to turn a, uh, a lack into a virtue. And that is, if I can sing it, then just about anybody can sing it. And so I'm sort of a filter uh, to get uh, to, to weed out some songs that normal people can't sing. Now, um, that's our goal. That's, so if somebody asks, what kind of worship does your church have? Here's the answer. At least this is what we're trying to do. Biblical, God-centered, and congregational. Now, those are the two first, the two first, um, the two first situations. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. And the third one, is anyone among you sick? And in any group, just about at any time throughout history, the answer to that would be yes. There's always someone who is, we have some people out sick today. There's always someone who is sick. Now, we're going to, we're going to spend more time on that one because James does as well. But before we get to that one, so that's the third situation. Uh, if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray. And so he talks about the elders praying, then he talks about the whole congregation praying. But before we look into that, I want to just talk about prayer real practically here. Because uh, James is saying, in any situation in which you find yourself, pray. And that's easy for some people to do. And it's harder for other people to do. I know people, in fact, I live with one, who can just sit down at any time and start praying and pray for hours. I sit down at any time and I start praying and then after just a minute or two, I'm distracted and thinking about something else. And so I am not particularly good at praying. Uh, And so what do I need? 
I need help in praying. And I've talked to other Christians that say, I want to pray, I just don't know how to do it. I, I try to pray, but I just am not able to get any traction, any direction. Am I alone in that? Or are there other people that have experienced that? Okay, what I'm going to do is show you a few of the things that I do. These are not prescriptions. These are my crutches. These are my helps in order to help me to pray. So what do I do? Well, this is how much help I need. This is some of the help I need in prayer. This is a little book I use, and this is a book of Scripture. It's a handbook to prayer, praying Scripture back to God. If I don't know what to say... I let God's Word guide me. And so this has, this has every day, it has, it has a, a section of praise, and confession, renewal, petition, intercession, affirmation, thanksgiving, and closing prayer. So I don't know, to, what, what, know what to pray, so I just use God's Word and pray that back to Him. And then I have, I know this is old school, but I have a, I still use paper planner. I, I love these things. Uh, ever since college, and I write it out in pencil, and then I erase. But but in the back, there's something even more old school. It's called an address book. Do you remember these? Well, what I did, I don't have your addresses in here, but I do have your names, because it conveniently is alphabetical. You remember how these work? So I have names in here, and I just have in pencil, I write people's names from here, from Mexico, from around the, the world, people I know, and I write petitions in here. So sometimes I'll just pull this out and alphabetically go through this list. Sometimes I use these. Every week I tell you to use the Connect cards. So give me your prayer requests. These are the prayer requests that you've given me, and sometimes I just pray through these. Uh, I have another book. It's it's called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. And when I use these prayers, I feel like I've never prayed in my life because of the depth of these prayers, and I feel like mine are very superficial. Uh, I also uh, sometimes don't know what to do in prayer, and sometimes I'm cheerful, and I want to sing praises, and so I just... I, I grab a hymnal, and I just, here's where I am, going through the hymnal again, and I just sing the ones that I can sing, which aren't very many of them, but, uh, uh, or the ones that I know, and I just, I just sing. Sometimes I'll spend my prayer time in the morning just singing, or, or I'll take the directory for our, our condominium, and I hear I have the names of all my neighbors, and just pray through the names of my neighbors. Or I use the prayer app that some of our, us are using. We have a prayer team in our church. And different people in the church put up prayer requests, and, and uh, I use the prayer app. Or I have the directory of the church, and I have all your names on there, and I just pray for the direct, through the directory of the church. Or I have a, a list of people that I meet throughout the week, and I just put their names in a, in a spreadsheet, and I just, I just pray through those names. So these are just some of the things I do. I'm not saying you should do these things. I'm just saying I need a lot of help, because I'm not one of those who can just sit down and, and pray for hours. I'm one who needs guidance and needs to keep keep my focus. And I'm just saying, I would encourage you to do the same thing. If you need help when you're suffering to pray, well, look for the helps that are available. Or if you need help to direct your praises to God, well, there are plenty of helps out there available. And so we can learn from each other about how to do that. Now, now we're, let's get to the third the third, uh, the third situation, which is sickness. Is anyone among you sick? In verse 14, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, this is a different situation, isn't it? Because here it's asking other people to pray. 
And it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Who are the elders of the church? Uh, we saw in our series on the church that the elders are the, the pastors, the ministers, the leaders of the church. Uh, these are the ones that are, are raised up from among the church. They're members of the church that, that are, are the ones giving spiritual direction to the church. And we, and we saw that in the New Testament that these, uh, there are always more than one elder in the church. It's not a hierarchical situation. There are always multiple men who are ministering in the church. And says, it says, call for them and they will pray. Now, there's something we should observe here. This is talking about a serious sickness. Why? Because the person can't go. The person needs to send for. The person needs to call for. And later it says the Lord will raise him up, which means he's on his sickbed. This is someone who has a, a serious illness. And the responsibility of the sick person is to call for the elders of the church. Now, I say that because I've had the experience, I'm an elder in the church, and I've had the experience of, I don't see somebody for a couple weeks, and so I'll call that person, a member of the church, and I'll say, how you doing? I haven't seen you. And they'll say, oh, much better, thank you. I'll say, oh no. Okay, I'll go ahead, and I'll take the bait here. I'll ask... What happened? Why is it much better? And they'll say, oh yeah, I'm out of the hospital. And, you know, I, I, was only in, I was only three days in the hospital. I'm thinking, oh no. And I feel like the worst pastor in the world because this person was in the hospital and I wasn't there to, to pray and to attend to this person. But what was missing there? They didn't call. But somehow I was supposed to know that they were in the hospital. And so this is putting the responsibility on the sick person Please, let the elders know. And this is a, we have a small congregation, so it's pretty easy, but when the congregation gets bigger, a lot of times we don't just automatically know when somebody is sick. So that's on the sick person. Then the elders are to go and to do two things, to pray over the person. There it indicates that the person's in bed. Pray over the person, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, there's some debate about, discussion about what this anointing with oil means. Uh, there is only one other instance in the New Testament of anointing with oil in order to bring about healing. And so they're different ideas. We don't have much evidence, but it could be like in the Old Testament where they anointed priests, they anointed kings. One instance, they anointed a prophet. And the idea was setting the person aside. It may be the idea here, I'm not sure, but setting a, the person aside for God's special care. That might be the idea. But the, the emphasis here is not on the anointing, the emphasis on prayer. And in verse 15, it says something that is really difficult for all of us. It says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, that's hard for all of us because I think all of us know that not every sickness gets cured. Is that your experience as well? That not every sickness gets cured. But here it says that the Lord will raise him up. If the elders go and pray and anoint, the Lord will raise him up. So how are we to deal with this? Because our experience doesn't, doesn't check with this idea that, that the Lord will raise him up, apparently, without, without qualification here. But this is where we need to read each part of the Bible in the context of the whole Bible. And not just take one verse, uh, but rather take the whole teaching of Scripture. And so here are some considerations that I think we should take into account uh, when we think about praying for healing. 
One is this. James has already told us in chapter 4, verse 14, that we are vapors that appear for a little while and vanish away. In other words, eventually we're all going to die and we're going to die of something. So, so he's already told us that, that our time on the earth is limited and we're all going to die of something. We're vapors that appear and disappear. And so we already know from James that not every sickness is going to be healed. Uh, this, the, 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 the consequence of that is this. The most important benefit that Jesus offers us is not physical healing. As, as important, as, as valued as physical healing is, sooner or later we are all going to lose our physical health. And so that is not the greatest benefit that Jesus offers us. The greatest benefit that Jesus offers us is eternal life. Eternal life. And that's the, the main thing. And Jesus was always getting misunderstood when He was doing His ministry. He was wanting to teach. He was wanting to preach. And what did the people want? They wanted healing. They wanted healing. They wanted miracles. And He did some of those, but that was to back up His teaching and show that He was the Son of God. But He was wanting them to get the message that He came to give life, eternal life, abundant life, here and beyond the grave. Another consideration is this. Jesus did not heal every sick person in His day. In some towns, it said many were healed. And in other places, He would heal one. Or He would heal a few. So He did not heal everyone in His day. And and another consideration is this. Sometimes God uses sickness for our good and for His own glory. For our good and for His own glory. Uh, For example... 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 9. This is Paul. And if you read the, the, the letter, or rather the history of Acts, you will find that Paul did what? He healed people. Yeah. He had that, that apostolic gift to heal people. So this is Paul's situation. He says this, um, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because he had this this revelation, this vision, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, Paul, this one who healed others, he had to deal with what? Some sort of chronic illness that was debilitating for him. We don't know what it was, but some sort of chronic illness. And why? It was for his good to keep him from becoming what? Conceited. And you can see how Paul could become conceited. What did you do today, Paul? Well, I evangelized Asia Minor. Now I'm getting on to Europe. Right? And I want to go even farther to Western Europe. Uh, uh, What did you do? I I healed some people. I performed some miracles. I cast out demons. I, I wrote letters that would become part of the New Testament. And to keep him from becoming conceited because he had this vision that no one else had had. God gave him this this disability. But also it was for God's glory. Did you notice that? 
Because God said, my grace is perfect in your weakness. My power is seen in your weakness. My grace is sufficient. And so Paul learned the lesson that he could glorify God through that chronic illness that he had so that people wouldn't be praising Paul the Powerful, but they would be praising God the Powerful who worked through Paul, the one who had the disease or whatever it might have been, the illness. And another consideration, then we'll get back to the text. There were many healings in the early church. Many healings. Uh, In the time of Jesus and in the time of the apostles. But there is a little bit of evidence, it's not much, a little bit of evidence that that was slowing down towards the end of the apostles' time. And I I don't want to make a big deal of this, but there are a couple curious verses. Uh, One is in 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, this is one of the, the... later letters of Paul, he has a curious little instruction for Timothy about drinking wine. And he says to Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So here's Timothy, another minister of the gospel, a missionary, uh, the right-hand man of Paul. And you might say, Paul, instead of telling him to drink wine instead of water, why don't you just... Heal him, like you did for so many other people. But he didn't do that. And then there's one other verse, and that's at the end of the last letter that we have of Paul, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. It's another little detail that we'd easily pass over. But this is at the end of Paul's life. He said, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. And so it looked like Trophimus had a serious illness, was lying down, couldn't travel, and Paul left him there, what? Ill. And so it looks like, perhaps, there was some slowing down of this explosion of healing at the time. Now, having said all that, having said all that, I do not want to take away from the instruction that James gave us to do. And James' instruction doesn't seem to have a time limit to it. It seems like a very ordinary thing that Christians should always do. And so we do this. We do this. If you have a serious illness or somebody has a serious illness, we will do this as elders. We will pray and we will anoint and we will ask God to heal you and to raise you up. And I have seen, I have seen in my time as a, as a pastor and elder in the church, God do amazing things in response to this. I knew a man, he was, in the first church of which I was a pastor, he was the only elder elder. All of the elders were in our 20s and 30s, and he was really an elder. He was an old guy at that time, you know, 60 or something, uh, which seemed old to me at the time, doesn't anymore. But he had diabetes, and he had arthritis, and he would very gingerly stretch out his hand, and he couldn't shake people's hand because it was so painful. And so we... We prayed for him, and we anointed him. And then Sunday morning, he, he was going up to everybody and saying, Shake my hand! And so I, I took it very gingerly, and he said, No, no, no! Shake my hand! And so I shook his hand, and he was able to shake my hand with firmness. Again, God had touched him in response to the prayer and to the anointing. A friend of mine, in, a colleague of mine in Mexico, uh, he one night woke up, and his eye was burning, and then he realized he couldn't close his eye, And then he realized that half of his face was paralyzed. It's called Bell's palsy. 
And um, so he did what he was supposed to do. He got the cortisone shots. He was trying to do the rehabilitation, but it was it was not not improving. And and with Bell's palsy, if it doesn't improve sooner, there's the chance that it won't improve at all. And this was going on for months. And we were just getting started like we are here, and we didn't have elders to call on yet. But he was visiting back to his home church in Tennessee. Months after this has started, with no improvement, and he, he went and he called for the elders of the church, and, and they prayed over him, and they anointed him in the name of Jesus. And guess what? Right after that, he began to heal and became completely well again. And so, has that always been my experience? No. But I say we should do what Scripture tells us to do in faith and leave the results up to God, but expecting that God will hear our prayers and answer according to what's best for us and according to what's more, most glorifying to Him. Now, um, after that, he says, do you want some encouragement for prayer? Think about Elijah. Oh, I'm sorry, I jumped over something very important. Verse 16. This is what the elders do, but then he says, not only the elders, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so now it's inviting the whole congregation to participate. That this should be a regular thing, not just when we're, we're laid out in the sickbed, but rather we should always be confessing our sins and praying for one another so that we might be healed. And did you notice something? He, he says here that if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And this is always a possibility. Um, Scripture is very careful here. If someone is sick, Scripture doesn't come and say, that person sinned in a particular way, that's why that person is sick. But at the same time, it says, there could be sin involved in this sickness. And so we always need to explore that possibility. And by the way, when the elders uh, anoint and pray, we always give the sick person the opportunity to confess any sins that he or she might want want to confess. And so there is a possible connection here. So it's saying, let's take care of all possibilities here. If there's a sin angle to this, let's address that as well. And we always know in our lives there is an ongoing sin problem, isn't there? That's why we need the ongoing mutual confession one to another, mutual encouragement, mutual prayer, so that we might find forgiveness, so that we might be healed. And then we go to Elijah. We go to Elijah, and it says, you know what Elijah was? He was a guy just like us. Verse 17. Verse 16 ends, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he says, Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. We look at Elijah and say, Wow, the prophet. One against 400. Actually, 850. He took on 850 pagan prophets. And he won. Well, God won that victory. But he was the one standing there. I mean, what a guy. He doesn't seem like one of us, does he? But sometimes he pouted. Sometimes he pitied himself. Sometimes he got depressed. Sometimes he got afraid and ran away. That sounds more like us, doesn't it? But sometimes he was bold as a lion and courageous and stood up to the king and declared the word of the Lord. And that sounds like us as well sometimes. He was a person just like us. That's what James is saying. And what did he do? He prayed. And he prayed that there wouldn't be rain and there wasn't rain as punishment on on Israel for going astray. Then he prayed again, and what was there? Rain. The sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And so, if he can do it, we can do it. If he could pray, this man who is just like us, we can pray. And the power isn't ours. The power comes from God.
And that's what we're doing in prayer. We're calling on the power of God. Now, those are, those are the, the situations. Those are the three situations. What are they? Suffering, cheerfulness, and sickness. What should we do? Pray, pray, and got it. Okay, one more situation. And this is the, the concluding two verses of James. And once again, James is hard, it's hard to figure out in James the connection sometimes. Is this the conclusion to this section? Is it the conclusion to the whole letter? I tend to think it's the conclusion to the whole letter, but this is the, the final instruction. His final words. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And I, I think this is the, the final appeal because what is the whole letter trying to do? I think it's a conclusion to the whole letter because the whole letter is James doing this. James is concerned about those who call themselves Christians, call themselves believers in Jesus, but their lives don't back it up. And James is calling out to those and saying, come back, come back, come back. And now he's saying, not only am I doing that, I'm encouraging all of you to do that. If you have someone, a brother or sister, who, who claims to be a Christian but has wandered away, then, then do for them what I'm trying to do for you and help them to come back. And that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Because sometimes there's a tendency to shoot the messenger. You know, it's an awkward thing to do to go to someone and to try to, try to encourage them and to, to correct them and to bring them back. And sometimes they, they fight back and resist and sometimes relationships get broken. But, but he, the stakes are very high here, he says. Because, because if someone wanders away, that person is wandering towards destruction. That's what he says here. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. As they're wandering towards the edge of the precipice, it's saying, go after them, try to bring them back, so that a multitude of their sins might be covered over. You see, these are the stakes here. And and, and Jesus came precisely to give us these two things, to save our souls from death. And how did He do that? By dying for us. By covering over a multitude of sins. How did He do that? by dying in our place to pay for our sins. So this is at the heart of the ministry of Jesus and the reason He came. And so, if someone wanders away from Jesus, that person is wandering away from life and toward death. If someone wanders away from Jesus, that person is wandering away from the forgiveness of sins and wandering towards condemnation for sin. So he's saying the stakes are high. So even though it's difficult, even though it's awkward, even though it's sometimes unpleasant to try to do this because they may not respond well, the stakes are high here. And if we love one another, this is the kind of thing we will do for one another. And sometimes as a, as a, as a leader in the church, an elder in the church, we have gone and we've tried to bring back uh, erring brothers and sisters who are wandering away and they turn on us. And who do you think you are? Who do we think we are? We are your brothers in the Lord. We love you in the Lord. And we don't want to see you destroy yourself. That's who we are. That's why we're here. Pleading with you and correcting you and encouraging you. We're moving towards, towards forming the membership of the church. And that's part of what members of a church do. We commit to one another. That, that if someone wanders away, that, that we will do all that we can 
to put up a great fight for their soul to bring them back. That's what families do. That's what members of a church do to one another. And if we do that, we're doing for one another what Jesus has done for us. Jesus was at a a meal one day and He was eating with notorious sinners. And He was eating with those who were considered something like the scum of, of Jewish society because these were these were the, the traitorous tax collectors who collected taxes for the oppressive Romans and lined their own pockets in the process. And Jesus was sitting down and eating with those kind of people. And so the good and righteous and religious people said, what are you doing? What are you doing eating with, with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus told a story. And He said, which one of you If you're a shepherd and you have a hundred sheep and one of those sheep, one, wanders away, which one of you will not leave the 99 and go out and rescue that one who has wandered away? And when when the shepherd finds the sheep, he puts the sheep on his shoulders and comes back and brings him back to the flock and calls his friends and says, Rejoice with me because... This one sheep was lost and now is found. You see, that's what Jesus came to do for sinners. As we were wandering away, doing what we wanted to do, living how we wanted to live, we weren't seeking God. God was seeking us and He was seeking us by sending the Good Shepherd. And what does the Good Shepherd do? The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep and the Good Shepherd goes after the sheep. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you're one of those sheep that's been found by Jesus, rescued by Jesus, brought back from death by Jesus, forgiven of your sins by Jesus. And now we hear, if that's what Jesus did for us, brothers and sisters, let's do this for one another. Let's pray. Our God, I thank You for seeking me. When I came to faith in Christ, I was not seeking You. You were seeking me. Through my friends and through my circumstances and through pastors, You were seeking me, Lord. And You found me. I thank You that You found me. And You did not reject me because of my sins, but You accepted me because Jesus died for those sins. And I thank You that that many of us have that story. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And we thank You for the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. And we pray, O God, for all of us here, that we would be found by Jesus, that we would find life in Him through faith in Him, and that we would love each other enough not to let others destroy themselves by sinning, by wandering away from life and forgiveness. God, I pray that You would make us a church of that kind of love and of that kind of prayer, that we pray in all circumstances, when we're suffering, when we're cheerful, when when we're sick, that we would confess, that we would pray for one another, that we would be healed, that we would be forgiven. And we pray, O God, that You would make us that kind of an instrument in our world of the Good Shepherd 
with this good news for the nations of the Good Shepherd who laid down His life for the sheep. And we pray in His name. Amen.